Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Susanna, and welcome to the Codeco podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here's the show. This is the Codeco podcast. Welcome to episode three for season one. This episode was recorded on Wednesday, the 9th of November, 2022, for release on Thursday, the 1st of December, 2022. This episode is sponsored by Split.io. I am your host, Drew Freeman, and always with our awesome co-host, Susanna Skyer-Gupta. Thanks, Drew. In this episode, we're going to visit with friend of the show, Mark Dalrymple, a longtime industry expert, a veteran of AOL and of Google, and author of the Advanced Mac OS X Programming Guide through Big Nerd Ranch. Mark's also a co-founder of Cocoa Heads, the international Mac and iOS programmers group. Mark, welcome back to the show. It's good to have you here. Hey, thanks for having me back. It's like, what show is this we've done? Is like second or third one? Fourth. This is fourth, because I listened to all three of the others, which are <laughs> fabulous. Yes, when Susanna uh, researches, flies. Susanna researches, you, you just have to be ready for that. <laughs> Normally, I start with non-tech with people, but you, we always have a little bit of show and tell. And you told me this just before the show. We are both connoisseurs of, of old Mac and Apple books, and, and you just picked up a pair? Yeah, a friend of mine from AOL is moving to Costa Rica and is Ooh. jettisoning and all his old books. He had this picture of all these books on his floor, like old inside Macintoshes, the newer inside Macintoshes, and there were two <laughs> which I just just had to pick up. I already had the Scott Canaster um, debugging Macintosh software, but there's this uh, object-oriented programming for the Macintosh, Object Pascal, Mac app, oh. as well as like a survey Look at the sweet of existing. Mac on the cover. Oh man, yes, it's like when nerds ruled the world. Oh my god, they goodness. still do. It's like a comb over before the hair starts to go. <laughs> <laughs> But the dude wrote some really good books. I, I oh, learned yeah. a lot of this first time around. And then the other one is the the Max Bug Reference and Debugging Guide. She even has a cool It was such a shame when bug Max was a Bug bomb. went away. Yeah. If, I was if actually I more of a Jazzix debugger guy. But if I remember correctly, Max Bug was something that was actually in the Apple and then made its way across to Mac. Yeah, I think it originally came from Motorola. So I think that's where the M came yeah. from mm. yeah it was motorola assembler something some yeah but uh because i remember at uh at wwdc when they used to do stump the experts somebody was asked what the oldest copyrighted software uh, the oldest software on the mac was and the Mac team were all like, well, it has to be something from 80, from 84. And it turns out it was Mac bugs from 81. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> so that did stump the experts. Stump the experts was one of those little fun experiences. Yeah. It's always fun to watch them go looking up through all of their, their material and everything. So, Mark, let's let's take our hands off the keyboard Aww. and talk about what what have you been doing for fun when you're not attached to to coding and keyboarding and all of that. <laughs> oh, geez. Well, some of my fun is more coding and and keyboarding. <laughs> I've got a couple side project apps in the store. Uh, one of which is is Music Jot, uh, music notation for the iPad, which we've been developing for 14 years now. I think. Oh, that's um, fantastic. Oh, and Music and Jot is of, amazing with what what kind of stuff it can do. 
Yeah, 14 years. And it's a cool story of a professional programmer, amateur musician. And my other half is a professional musician, amateur programmer. And our skills mm. happen to mesh really well. And we've gotten to be really good friends over the 14 years we've been working on this. Yeah, I was uh, watching you demonstrate that at a recent Cocoa Heads. And, well, you demonstrated it at many of the Cocoa Heads. But but some of the newer stuff that you throw in where where, where things just line up. You you put a half note in and other things immediately jump over and move to where they're supposed to be. Yeah, I think you were demonstrating uh, the chord trees and how they arrange the notes on the tree. And putting an accidental, so the more accidentals you have in a close-packed chord, they have to lay out in this particular way so that they don't overlap each other. So you end up having... Like, you know, either in one column, but if they overlap, then one has to overflow to another column. If you have enough, then it can you can have three columns of these accidentals that have to be arranged just so. And that's just like one tiny aspect of music notation, which is huge, deep, and arbitrary. And you can kind of see that i got a music stand back there, so it's no... Yeah, yes, you do. Yeah, I, I, I play trombone in uh, community bands and swing bands, and I play bassoon in the local orchestras. Nice. So do you find yourself, so 14 years of developing that, how much refactoring have you done recently? Like, did you turn it all into SwiftUI? I th I'm doubting <laughs> yes, but. Oh, no, it's, it's actually all still Objective-C because my, over, my other half uh, is, is a C programmer. He did mm -hmm. C on PCs back in the day, and he understands Objective-C. And it's big, but it compiles quickly, which Swift okay. tends to not tend to not do. And actually not too much of our user interface is like would benefit from Swift UI because the biggest thing is the main canvas where you have all the music stuff. And that is custom events, custom event handling, a bunch of gesture recognizers and quartz drawing. So each note head is a character from a font and we draw the stems, we draw the beaming um, Swift UI. Last time I looked was not great for that kind of software. Yeah. Yeah, I found the Swift UI. Well, it does have canvas drawing now. It's still, I think, in its in, in its earlier stages. Um, I don't know. I, I've tried to start playing with canvas drawing, but I find myself going, no, I'm going to go run back to, to other languages where I feel safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have done kind of refactorings to... Um, Sometimes it's to work around bad bugs and sometimes to improve our user interface. My, my most, I think, impressive one was um, before. So everything is inside of a scrolling um, canvas. And we originally had, OK, our score view, it would draw the canvas. You could draw around and it could cache things for you and everything is great. But as we soon discovered that as your score got larger, that the view got larger and is backed by a graphic card texture. And once you get beyond a certain size, then the texture fails, the layer oh, wow. is not handling things correctly, and you crash. So we'd have users mm. that got to like, 50 measures is great. I had the 51st measure and you crash. Mm. And the way we worked around that was, okay, instead of sc scrolling the score view around, we now scroll just an empty UI view and that means that there's no backing store because there's no custom stuff. And we put our gesture mm. recognizers and buttons and whatnot on that. And then there's the actual score view, which doesn't scroll, sits behind the scroll view and only draws what is inside of its portal. So we detect when things have scrolled and say, ah, okay, redraw 
this chunk of measures, actually some on either side, so you can get like uh, you know, slurs and other stuff to, to render correctly. And But we're always now drawing just what's inside of this little viewport, uh, thereby <laughs> not dying when our users actually use the program. Caching complexity is always one of those things that catches up with you eventually. And it's one of those where you just kind of find out where all the coordinate tendrils are, because instead of having a, this touch is this position in the score, it's now, this touch is this position in the screen. So we have like score coordinates and then our virtual coordinates and our screen coordinates that we have to make sure jive when we're laying things out, handling user events. Uh, no, even printing, we ran into some, some issues where we had coordinate transfers bad when we were laying stuff out on a page. But that, that's software. That's why you make the big buck. <laughs> the big buck. Yeah, I mean... Singular. <laughs> 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 now, you said you were doing a couple of uh, side things. Are there any ones you can talk about? Yeah, the other one is through a uh, group uh, called iClass Builder. It is a uh, an app for indoor cycling instructors, so spinning instructors. Um they can go to the website, um, create classes, um, like here's a playlist of music. Um, I want to do specific queuing, like I'm going to do a two by 20 power test. And I want to coach the people through this, have RPM suggestions and uh, heart zones. We, we work with the Sally Edwards and the, the heart zones company. Um, and they design this class. Cool. And then I'm part, I write the iOS app where they go to the club, um, pull down their class and then either Spotify, Apple music, or they can provide their own music through Dropbox can then play the class, plug the music into the speakers, airplay a ride profile up on the screen so that people who are in the class can see, Oh, cool. Here's the two by 20. We're going to have, okay. A couple minutes break between the two parts of the, the power test. And then also badges at the top. So they can see, okay, it should be this RPM or this heart zone. And the instructor also has a dashboard of the current queue, the upcoming queue. They've got a lap counter and they can see how much time is left in the current song and the current class. Um, and our users love it. For those of you who are listening on the podcast, in a few weeks we're going to have this on YouTube. And I really bring this out because Mark is very expressive when he talks, and you actually get more of what he's saying by watching some <laughs> of the gestures that he makes. Um, <laughs> so how'd you get into that? Like, are you, do you do spin <laughs> classes? Are you into spin? Oh, um, it's, everything is a story. So shortly before I left Google, um, the uh, Charlotte, my wife and I, we were like, we, we, I want to get back into bicycling because I did bicycling for a lot of the nineties and no spinning. I've heard spinning is cool. So Charlotte did some, some research and found this spinning studio called global ride in lower Burl, Pennsylvania. So I live near Leechburg, Pennsylvania, and I don't mind being doxxed. All my information is already out there anyway, um, near Leechburg. So Laura Burl is not that much bigger than Leechburg. It's like these small towns. It's like, why would this have a spinning studio? Okay, cool. It got pretty good reviews. So I went over there, met the owner, Gene Nacy, and he had this like really cool, like upstairs room with 20 bikes and a stereo system and fans. And he also offered yoga and Pilates. And we were like, yes. Well, it turned out that Global Ride. Oh, and also um, he made cycling DVDs. He would fly to Hawaii, strap oh, cool. cameras to cars and have bring some bicyclists and follow the bicyclists through routes and then edit those and add music and coaching. So you could exercise to you know, riding through roads in Hawaii. Um, it's like, wow, this is pretty cool. 
Well, it turns out all this was an incubation. He's kind of like a, a laboratory. No, we are we are his um, no, experimental no, guinea pigs, and you know, sometimes we make guinea pig noises during classes, like Gene's doing something to us. Um, <laughs> but after he had a double hip replacement, he was uh, had a recommendation of using spinning as a form of uh, therapy, and he went to a spinning okay. class, and it was a terrible experience. It was a Barbies on bikes, like okay. We're just starting. Go full out, up, down, up, down, up, down. Pull up the weights. And he was like, this is bad. And so he was like, okay, I'm going to approach this scientifically. Reach out to people who kind of teach indoor cycling like regular just cycling on the road. And that's how he built his classes um, and eventually um, created a power training program for folks who are not like top tier athletes because the Kaiser bikes we had inside had power meters. And so you could use that. And so if you could uh, sustain one watt per pound, um, you could climb most of the hills in Western Pennsylvania. It's hilly around here. And he ran experiments and did the science to verify that stuff. And he's got a powertrain book in the iBook store, if anybody wants to, to check it out. And when I was like on my way out of Google, he was like, I'm going to move the studio and do this more seriously, like you know, record training classes, make certifications. I thought, I'm going to be out of a job soon. Hey, do you want a partner? Want to do stuff? And And he was like, sure. And since then, it's been like about maybe 12 years. We've now been working on these things, various versions. Um, the 32-bit apocalypse actually killed our previous version of the app because of Spotify and some video mm. stuff that you're doing with in-app purchases, which we don't do anymore. Um, so pretty much a ground-up rewrite in Swift. So that's kind of like my Swift, Swift playground. Oh, that's cool. And do you still do spinning? Unfortunately, no. Uh, Gino, as he likes to be called, um, moved farther down into the city. And we found another gym around here with uh, spinning classes, and they were not good. So kind of like yeah. we've, got, we've got a bike upstairs, and we've got a bunch of stuff on video that we, we use when it's outside of cycling season. So you've made a very successful process of transitioning from I have work to I have new work. <laughs> you, you're very, very innovative at, at, at finding these, these new opportunities. It's having friends and the inability to say no. Because mm -hmm. both of these projects I thought would be, okay, it will be kind of entertaining for a while, and then they're going to lose interest. They're going to move on to something else. But no, I didn't realize just how laser-focused uh, John on Music Jot and Gino on iClass Builder were. So that's how I'm still here today. So the, So... The, the the projects that are out there that that you can find again you are not necessarily getting into hard software engineering positions where they're paying you software engineering salaries right but it can be a good thing i think to do in between you know like it depends on what stage you feel you're at at in your career maybe this is you know maybe this works now because you're not in between you're like okay i have other income and i can do this but you know it could be a good thing for somebody from Twitter or Meta or Stripe or Lyft or, oh my gosh, guys, the list <laughs> yeah. is getting long. Mm -hmm. Well, I survived the, the um, dot-com implosion in 2001. So it's working for a, um, actually a quintessential dot-com excess story. Uh, not success story, but excess story, where one of the quotes out of a history of uh, Ars Digita was 
Like, why don't we just burn cash 24-7 in a golden trash can? Um, so, <laughs> so Ars Digita uh, had had the, the bloodbath on October 11th, 2001. So one month after October 11th, uh, September 11th. Um, and I got four months six, uh, of, like, wrapping up project work and then it was like, bye. And... That that was a very interesting time. Similarly, a lot of folks were hitting the market. Um, luckily, I've always kept like six months of living expenses in something liquid so that if I did lose my job, I could go for six months, no, tighten your belts, go for nine months of being able to like take a reasoned approach to what is the next stage. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to take the next visual basic job that floated by so that I could feed the cat and keep a roof over my head. Now that's a luxury. A lot of folks don't have particularly like the student loan debt that, so this happened my 10th year into my career. Um, So I managed to have enough of a nest egg and it was during that downtime where I took my first big nerd ranch class. I changed my focus from Unix networking websites to OS 10 graphic programming. And oh, no, wow. that was a so huge was career that change. Your start with Apple, really? Like the world of Apple? No, actually, Apple II in uh, junior high and high school, Macintosh through then. And typically it was either Mac programming, like old school pre-OS 10 Mac, which I did at mm-hmm. AOL, or Unix stuff, which I did at the two parts on, on either either side. OS 10 was kind of unique that it was Mac stuff, Unix stuff, which I knew, and also Next Step, which I had always, oh, always right. just just absolutely wanted a Next Cube when it first came out. And Byte Magazine had, uh, essentially it was hardware pornography about the, the next of like, here's all the cool <laughs> stuff it does. And here's all the amazing, all the things you can get to it. It's like, this is amazing. I want one. And I managed to secure the cash to buy one. Uh, they were expensive, um, yeah. but they would not sell it to me because they only sold to educational, uh, educational institutions and Hendricks College in Conway, Arkansas, where I went, was not one of their you know, highly influential institutions that they wanted to get these machines into. And somewhere in my files, I still have my rejection letter from the developer program. But I still, oh, wow. <laughs> I still went and bought the documentation. It was like four linear feet of these white volumes. Like, this is really cool. A lot of square brackets and stuff. I don't understand, but this is pretty cool. Okay. And then... OS 10. So like when next purchased Apple for like negative $300 million or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then OS 10 was like, Hey, here's next step with a old school, no blue box, old Mac sidecar is like next step, Unix, Mac stuff's like, yes, this is my next kind of like, no, almost ideal direction that, that my career could have gone into. Yeah. Um, I was fortunate enough to see a next cube at Carnegie Mellon, <laughs> Um, when they had one there, but the uh, seeing one up close did not have quite the allure as having read the programming stuff underneath everything that was going on there. It was a, a seemingly clunky interface at the time. Uh, actually, I got to see one um, late, yeah, late eighties. So, uh, my dad, in addition to being radiology, nuclear medicine was also a member of the Arkansas symphony. Um, so he's a French horn and trombone player. And at 
the major university in Conway University of Central Arkansas, they actually had some interest from the next folk and a next person was giving a demonstration to the music department. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, oh, wow. the, so, and the, one of the instructors over there is a trombone player that knew my dad who knew my interest in next. And so he basically called me up as like, Hey Mark, the guy is bringing an X cube over. Do you want to come play with it? I'm like, yes, uh, he won't sell it to me, but I could still use it. And so compared to like, you no, know, the black and white Mac SC, which I had, I think I had maybe a access to a Mac two with a 640 by 480 screen, seeing that absolutely gigantic screen, like you know, a million pixels on it, not quite a million, but it was close and four colors. It was like shading. This is cool. Um, and like bringing up a dictionary with pictures in it, you know, the works of Shakespeare, you could search mm-hmm. through it. Yeah. Um, um, it was running off the Magneto optical drive. So it, it wasn't slow. It was majestic, but it was still like, <laughs> you could see the potential of like, this is hardcore tech and also kind of loving polish for ordinary people using it. If I remember correctly, the, the price tag was somewhere around 65 or 7,500, 7,000, wasn't it? Uh, 10 grand. Was it 10? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The original ones was 10 grand out of the box. Wow. Right. And then eventually they stopped with the hardware, but continued with the software. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I think, Next Step begat OpenStep, and it ran on a bunch of Unix systems. So you could get this next runtime for a Solaris, HPUX, um, and I think they still sold Next Step as a bootable PC operating system. Yeah, I remember because when uh, when OpenStep was uh, when Next Step was first debuted as part of the 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 OS ten dream. They basically said, so here's Next Step. Go out and get yourself a PC. And this was a <laughs> WWDC. They're actually t- telling all these Apple developers, go out and get a PC and install this PC software and, and have fun. And uh, I, I remember that was that was quite the, uh, the process. I remember telling my boss I wanted a PC, and he looked at me like, you've never wanted a PC. You're always that <laughs> Mac guy here. <laughs> And and so began that piece of history. So, where did you transition into Big Nerd Ranch? Where, how did that occur? Um, I've been in the Big Nerd Ranch orbit for well over twenty years now. Um, actually, I ended up writing a uh, the twentieth anniversary history and gave a presentation of it at a webinar for folks at the twentieth anniversary. Um, so basically, it was my job, job at Ars Digita went away. I knew I wanted to get into this new Mac thing. Like, okay, I want to learn stuff. And remember magazines, like these printed, (laughs) those things you got every month that were printed on paper. They had words on it. You could read code. You could type in. And then in the back, they had these advertisements, no targeted advertisements because they knew that you were buying Mac tech magazine that you were interested in technical Mac stuff. And I, there's, they had this like quarter page ad in the back of big nerd ranch. Come learn to program the new Macs. Um, that's like big nerd ranch. That is such a delightfully weird name. Um, went to their website, saw the course. Um, as like, this is absolutely perfect for me. No, a week intensive study. Um, I knew to which book to buy. So actually I worked through the book before going to, to the class, um, and just really hit it off. Now with was Aaron. this also back in the day, did you go 
to a class? Like you took your body and physically went out of your home? It, I, I know it's, it's really strange to think about, but I actually flew from, at the time yeah, I was living in Pennsylvania, down to um, North Carolina, uh, Asheville, yeah, Asheville, North Carolina, to Wild Acres, the uh, facility out there. And they had like enough roomage for, I think, a dozen folk. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were tables, and Aaron supplied uh, Mac cubes. So the. They were like quiet, no fans, very, very monastic environment. And the food was great. And because everything was no, outside so of the travel to get there, everything was, was included. So you fed and ate in the, the place, you learned in the place, afternoon walks, and you were encouraged to get a lot of sleep because sleep helps cement the learning. And hit things off with, with Aaron. It's like, hey, he's a really cool, smart guy. I love these books. I started doing some consulting, and he actually helped me get my first position, um, actually, with Nomos in Cranberry. Wonderful. They're no, no longer around, um, but he introduced me to them. And then I pitched an idea to him of like, hey, what about a book or a course of like programming tools, like profilers and whatnot? And he said... I can't really sell that, but I get a bunch of questions about make files and sockets and file descriptors and that kind of stuff. And it's like, I know that stuff. And so we worked together over the course of six or nine months building the core Mac OS X and Unix programming class, which then evolved into the advanced uh, Mac OS X programming Big Nerd Ranch Guide, which is the third edition. And I taught that in you know, North Carolina, Salt Lake City, in Germany. Um, and then he helped me get into Google through a good recommendation. And then once I was done with Google and did my cycling fusion work, it ran out of health insurance. God bless America. It's like, I need, I need an employer which can supply me health insurance. Yeah. Um, and thanks to like some, at that time, it still had the um, pre-existing condition stuff going on. And so for both of us to get on the same um same program was just not going to be affordable. So it's like, Hey, Aaron, are you hiring? Can I work? And he said, sure. So that was 2012. So I've actually been an employee of the big nerd ranch since 2012. So that's like, uh, 11 years, something like that. Um, doing, uh, working Almost. on books, yeah. Yeah, so- working on books, teaching classes and doing client work as well. We'll have more of the Codeco podcast after these words from split IO. This podcast is brought to you by the Split Feature Management and Experimentation Platform. What if a release was exactly how it sounds? A liberation from constraint, a moment of relief, an escape from outdated processes, tedious software, changes, and the slow, painful deployments that hold back product engineers. Free your teams and your features with Split. By attaching insightful data to feature flags, Split helps you quickly deploy, measure, and learn the impact of every feature you release, which means you can turn up what works, turn off what doesn't, and give software innovation the room to run wild. Now you can safely deliver features up to 50 times faster and exhale. Split feature management and experimentation. What a release. To reimagine software delivery and propel your teams forward, start your free trial at split.io slash Codeco. And we'd like to thank Split.io for sponsoring this episode of the Codeco podcast. What year did you uh, did you take the class? 
It was March of 2002. So yeah, I took mine about that time as well. Um, and it was it was a it was a, a hunting lodge retreat. Was was where the class was, and the 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 cubes all sharing one internet line. Uh, it's where I learned to love sweet tea. I never developed a taste for that. Oh, tea that says mm, chewy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, the Big Nerd Ranch, uh, the symbol at the time, I, I don't know if it still is, was the, uh, the cowboy hat with the propeller beanie. Mm-hmm. That looks kind of like a uh, like a dune buggy. So cowboy hat, which kind of curly cues around at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Oh, and see, only- I was looking at it and thinking it's like a cowboy hat with the infinity symbol as the bottom. Yeah, yeah, kind of the same thing. So it's, it's more polished and more more corporate-y because, you know, the times they change. Yeah, I remember we were thinking uh, way back when of having both Aaron and Ray on the show together to talk about different views on the educational process in the in the industry. But at that point, Aaron had basically stepped back and... It, it that that was sort of our the crux of our show. Yeah, Aaron actually recently posted his, the new thing that he's he's working on, continua.org. I'll put it in the Zoom chat. It basically it looks like Big Nerd Ranch style materials, but for teaching STEM topics. Ooh, so interesting. Uh, yeah, because Aaron I think now has a PhD in like mathematics, and he's always had an interest in helping entire like categories of, of, of people that do not have the resources of things they that they need. Like before he was really interested in water and toilets for places that don't have those. And now he's been is like concentrating on folks who really could use good materials for learning the physics and the mathematics and basic programming necessary for being a you no know, non software engineer. Um and making that uh, free, freely available. We'll definitely put this in the show notes because I'm just having a look right now and a free long-term self-paced course for future engineers. So that's a beautiful thing. Um, so something that I know you guys are doing over there now that is really intriguing to me is that you offer an apprenticeship program. And I don't know, like... I don't know how that works, how many slots there are. The way I know is because I follow a quite young gal on Twitter and she is in that program and it's been transformative for for her because she comes from a very much a non-traditional background for an iOS dev. So what do you know about that? Like, how does it work and when did you guys start offering it and how can we convince more companies to offer it or should we not do that? Oh, it's definitely a great thing. So I know exactly who, who you're talking about via Fairchild. Um, so she has a number of mentors. I'm not her full-time guiding mentor, but I'm there for, hey, I have this question. I got an explanation, but I don't understand it because most of my explanations kind of devolve down into this thing is actually a chunk of bytes. So this language construct is not a chunk of bytes. So when you're doing the chunk of bytes, that's when you can call functions on it, that kind of stuff. Um, but also um, she shadows me on my client work, uh, attending standups, um, like technical sync meetings. And also if I've got something simple that I can slice off, I can give it to her and she can work on it with, with support. Uh, and she actually has one, um, 
code change merged to this client project and we're going to work on the pull request for a second one. So she's actually going to have code in a product that you can download from, from the app store. But no, fundamentally the apprentice program is, is, is an altruistic effort. Like we want to you know, provide more opportunities for the non-traditional engineers. So like we got plenty computer science degree and three years of professional experience folks out there. And it's great. We need a bunch of those folks, but that's like a limited slice of the human pie. So having folks from non-traditional right. backgrounds, uh, they bring just amazing questions, amazing insights, things that you may have things that you think are absolutely sacred, um, but then they ask a question of like, well, no, you really don't have to do it that way. Or machines are fast enough. You can use a linear algorithm instead of a binary search just because stuff is is so fast. Um, that's also why I've been enjoying being involved with the underdog devs, which is a program mm. to, uh, for a, a teaching um, programming skills for the disadvantaged and uh, formerly incarcerated. Um, they the ones who are in the program are very intense, very smart, very, you know, question everything. And sometimes it was described as teaching a dolphin to swim is like, he's kind of getting in the right direction and, and they go. And so knowing that being able to pull those people into the software engineering um, career, I think helps all of us. And so Big Nerd Ranch specifically um is by bringing on these less experienced engineers who have not had the you know, opportunity of a college degree where a huge amount is done of programming is done just as part of the coursework is you know, they need to come in with a certain set of skills. But then our job as mentors is to help bring them along until they can basically become billable as a, as a, a become billable as a junior developer. And then, from that point on, they're doing real client work, real interactions with other engineers, with clients, with still the supporting infrastructure of the rest of the nerds. And also, it's like great for the company because it helps us as a company improve our internal programs and processes so that we can like support just more people inside of our organization. And the mentoring is something that like advanced nerds who, um, like you're doing the hard work, you know, really intense work on client projects. Sometimes they want a more human touch or maybe they're doing work, which is like not necessarily not challenging, but they know that, you know, I could be doing more. Well, you could be doing your, you know, the work that the client needs now and also mentoring this uh, junior individual to help them grow. And I found that like pair programming with my other half on music jot is and we actually pair every week for two hours. We've been doing that for 14 years. Um, and so he oh, will cool. ask, yeah. And he will ask questions of like, why are you using a set here? And then I have to stop and like, okay, I did this by reflex. What was the reflex that led to this? And it's like, right. Oh, why am okay. I doing this? Yeah. Right. Because, oh, cause I want uniqueness or I want fast lookup or it's just something that I do. We could put it in an array. Oh, if we put it in an array and kept it sorted, then we could have this other thing. Cool. And sometimes the question will make me rethink my process and maybe take it off in a better direction. And there are a lot of things that as engineers we do by by habit. I, I really do like that question, that, that sense of questioning, why am I doing this? Is this the correct solution? Because as you mentioned, um, you can find 
that in analyzing yourself, you find extensibility you wouldn't have others otherwise seen. And that's why I love things like meetups, uh, Cocoa Heads especially, of like, I love it when the junior people give presentations. So um, mm. we've got, so uh, Drew may know of a, a, a Spencer Greenholt, the, the older of, of the two Greenholt boys. Um, he is, is absolutely brilliant. He is a C programmer. He has written extensions to explain um, and as working as a security expert. When he was like early teenagers, he gave a brief demonstration of Google SketchUp to Cocoa Heads. It was his first public speaking and first kind of interaction with in public with nerds. And I, I like to think that that was kind of help him get on that trajectory of pursuing a, you know, a career and lifestyle uh, in tech. And now he's landing you know. planes in some of the most frightening. <laughs> There's a now I'm going to try to explain this. Uh, Mark, I might need you to back me up on this one, but uh, the the there is an airport. Where is the airport? It's like uh, Wisconsin, is it? Yes, Oshkosh. Where they basically fly as many planes in as they can over a period of, I think it's 48 hours. Mm-hmm. And they do it one weekend with flight simulators, and then they do it the following weekend real. And this is the Oshkosh Air Show? Is that what you're talking about? No, this is not an air show. This is literally planes are flying in and out of the airport nonstop. They're actually... Oh, really? Um, hundreds, if I remember correctly. Because they do an air show yes. up there, too. Yes, the uh, fly-in and convention. Huh. Like 600,000 people and 10,000 airplanes every july oh that's and, wild and um and what's the the elder boy's name again uh spencer 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 does this on flight simulator he knows some of the flight uh, some of the 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 traffic control folks um he was demonstrating some of his landings and some of the uh less careful flyers around him so he's just just an amazing amazing kid. And where does Spencer fit into the um, the ecosystem here? Oh, he's uh, he's a member of our local Cocoa Heads, and he's somebody who started uh, giving presentations very young and uh, has really grown. COVID is beginning to fade. It would be nice to see people being to build back up into Cocoa Heads, but uh, a lot of that, as uh, Mark and I were discussing, seems to be. Uh, fading on to Slack and Discord channels rather than people going and doing this in, in person. And I, I, I think that's a loss because that, that, that is really it's a great chance to speak, to, to, uh, to be networking with people in person like that. I mean, I think you still build skills if you're doing a presentation digitally. It's just different. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So... So in your local Cocoa Heads group, are you back in person? Do you have regular physical meetups? Yes. There's a, uh, we use the back meeting room of a restaurant chain called Eaton Park in the area. And they have a, a server that takes care of us and they have a decent salad bar and we've got you know, a lot of space back there. And I've got a projector, actually it belongs to my wife, but she lets me borrow it uh, every month. And, uh, so usually we've got like 
four, five, six, seven, like eight hardcore regulars, and then three or other three or four other folks that uh, that's that swing through. Mm-hmm. And you go to the same one, right? That's how you guys know each other. Yeah, that this is for uh, the Pittsburgh uh, Pittsburgh metropolitan area. Possibly later this season, we're going to talk a little bit more about how does one get a successful meetup off the ground. But that's really more in this post, I don't like the term post-COVID, but uh, post-lockdown world of, yeah. you know, where it's going to be either primarily online or hybrid. Let's go back into tech things. Mark, we, 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 we talked about the fact that you had a little bit of uh, Apple, you had a little bit of Mac, you had a little bit of Unix. How much of the Unix are you still using? All the time. So folks who are regulars at my Cocoa Heads know that I have a kind of a hate-hate relationship with Xcode. And so I don't spend a huge amount of time in Xcode outside of the times where I have to be there. So I actually use a old-school Unix text editor called Emacs that runs in the terminal. You can run it in Windows, but I just run it in no terminal mode. Um, What's awesome is that you can warm it up with your usual working set of files and then you never have to quit it. It never crashes. You don't have to restart it because it lost its mind. So I've had Emacs. And you're contrasting it running. to something there, I feel. like. Well, there's Emacs and there's oh. VI and never the twain oh. shall meet. Okay, so, I'm, so oh. I actually am also an old Unix person. And um, so I'm familiar with VI. So I was team VI, sorry to say. Oh, um, oh I, but I, I have no problem with old school editors. Now, if you wrangle one of those, you are a number one in my book. I was teasing that he was contrasting it with Xcode that has to constantly be restarted and cleaned. And- yes, I, I well, actually, for my current client work, I usually restart Xcode at least four or five times a day because it just loses its mind, particularly with uh, the set of packages that it has. You have to quit it and do a bunch of command line shenanigans and then restart Xcode. Otherwise, it just won't build. Hashtag we love you, um, Xcode. <laughs> I-L-Y-X-C. Actually, that's my shell uh, alias for nuking my derived data. So I type, I-L, no, I love you, Xcode, I-L-Y-X-C, return, and then my derived data is gone. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I do a lot of stuff with it. So um, Xcode's like project search is, is, is okay. It's pretty decent, but I like using a command line search utility. I use one called ag but it's kind of a rip rep style of tool which can search a directory hierarchy for something really 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 fast so i could like at the top of music jot oh ag score view i want to see wherever i have a variable named score view and a quarter of a second later i've got a bunch of output that then i can go back and and look for um find is a fantastic utility and it's really complicated the first time you see a find command um like find dot dash name star dot h dash exec uh, grep os nine point one open curly close curly backslash semicolon dash print run that but that command will only look in your header files and look at the header files to see if it contains a particular symbol and if it does will print out the match of the symbol and print out the name of the of the file or I could have it just print out the name of the file. I could use xargs to then feed that into another program, like say WC, which will count lines. So I could see how many lines of code are involved with files 
that have um, an availability macro relating to OS 10, 10, 13. I wish we had time to play the entire interview, but if you'd like to see the interview with all the material, watch YouTube for the full video version. Mark, it is always 100% a pleasure to have you on this show because it is always some incredibly in-depth knowledge with just a touch of chaos thrown in. <laughs> and it is always such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for, for, for taking time to join us this, this season. It's my, my pleasure. You've got a great place to visit. You can find Mark online, as always, uh, at, well, as long as Twitter remains, at, at Borkware. That's B-O-R-K-W-A-R-E. Uh, you'll, you'll know that you've got Mark because you'll hear Bork, Bork, Bork. Bork, 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 and you'll see a Bill the Cat. Yes, um, I love that. I am on Twitter as Podcast Drew. Oh, there's the Bill the Cat, and you'll see that in the video version. Susanna is online as Suze Gupta, S-U-Z-G-U-P-T-A. Next episode, Kadeco professional growth contributor Kaveh Balumbo is going to join us to talk about diversity and inclusion in tech. But that's going to wrap things up for this episode. Uh, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. We'll be back again in two weeks. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you then. Thanks so much. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the Codeco podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating in your favorite podcast app. See you next time. <laughs>